0: Have one communion cup in that back basket on the way back to your chairs. Right. right, let's take a moment of quiet just to still our hearts and uh, let our attentions catch up to our bodies that are in this room. Just notice where we are and um, be prepared to receive God's Word today. Our Father, let us never take lightly what it is to be in your presence, with your people, and to approach you uh, with confidence to worship you, that you have given us life, you have rescued us in every way possible, and may we not take that lightly, but receive it with grace. May you speak through this time, and whatever you want for us, let us receive it from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now that you're seated and comfortable, I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence, For the reading of God's word in Mark 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The word of the Lord. Maybe may be seated. So if you've been with us in the past few weeks, we've returned to the Gospel of Mark in this Lenten season. And Lent is a time of preparation where the people of God kind of prepare their hearts again to receive what Jesus has to give at Easter. What he has to give us on the cross and resurrection. And so the first few weeks of Lenten preparation season were on the parables, which has a great deal of attention on our hearts what we bring to the table. It's a method of teaching by Jesus that reveals the posture of the hearer and makes the hearer think about what they're holding on to as they encounter Jesus. What agendas are they holding on to and presumptions are they holding on to? Are they willing to release them for Jesus' teachings on the parable to kind of break open their hearts and reveal something different than they were expecting about the kingdom? Now the narrative of Mark turns to what many scholars refer to as the chaos miracles where Jesus demonstrates his authority over the chaos of nature and the demonic and sickness and even death. And it it shows kind of the tension of that authority and the disciples' reactions to it along the way and and of all people's reactions along the way to kind of reveal what faith is. And so here's the question that I want to be asking as we move forward with the text today. It's on the slide. That is next. How do we live with trust in Jesus' restorative authority? That's the the dominant question here. He's demonstrating an authority to bring restoration where there is chaos and disorder. And the disciples are called to live with confident trust in that. But as you kind of wrestle with that question, it's difficult because there's a tension in the passage. So this is the tension we're going to talk about. Uh, There's two kind of things held in tension here. When I read a passage, I look for this tension. What does it make sense? Where is the tension there? And the tension is that Jesus has authority over the chaotic natural world. He demonstrates that. That's obvious with just the word. But the disciples have a doubt-filled faith as they respond. They are fearful and doubting, and yet faith is still there. And those two things exist in tension then for them, and if we're honest— They exist for tension with us, too. So we're going to talk about those two things, and in the end, be able to talk about what we do with our doubt. Not, do you have doubt, but you do. What do we do with it? So let's first talk about Jesus' authority over the chaotic natural world. And so this great windstorm happens, and the sea is crazy. And on the surface, just from our distance here, 2,000 years removed, We can even already see how amazing this is and all that's happening here with Jesus being able to calm a storm. But to get the real power of the story, it is crucial for us to think about what the sea meant for ancient peoples, especially the people of Israel. In the Bible, the sea is seen as wild and untamable. It is chaotic. And so the beginning of creation, the waters are chaotic and out of order. And God's first step is to bring those waters into order. He puts them in their place, separating them from the land and from the sky. He brings order where there's disorder and where there is chaos. And from that order, he then gives humanity a job over that creation to steward creation and to bring creation's praises back to God. And then when humans fail in that job, then not only are they marred by sin, but all of good creation they were over is also marred by sin. And so that good creation goes into disorder again. And the sea becomes a place of chaos, a place of, uh, that represents even evil in the Old Testament. And so just a few chapters later, there is a, a God responds to the sin of humanity by flooding the earth, and he saves humanity by restoring Noah's family from the chaos of the waters. Then many years later, in the time of the Exodus, when God's people are on the run, And they have the army on one side and they have the sea on the other and God holds back the chaos of the waters so that the people of Israel can pass through. In Daniel 7, we have a crazy prophetic vision where Daniel is given a, a vision of crazy monsters coming from the sea to take over God's people. And the sea is seen not just as like a neutral piece of the natural world, but like the place from which evil comes. And God responds in that vision to put that chaos back in its place and save and rescue God's people. In Psalm 29, it says that God has dominance and overrules. He sits on a throne over even the sea. And in another psalm, there's an outcry that God would save them from even the sea, and he does. And so all throughout that biblical narrative, you see this example where nature is good but marred by sin. It is not in a good place. And so it trains us to imagine that this good creation that is meant to be a place for God's people, his creation, to flourish actually also brings lots of chaos. And so we have tornadoes and earthquakes and mosquitoes and bedbugs and wild viruses that can take over and make the whole world stop. I remember this passage brought me great comfort when... Our whole lives got flipped upside down two years ago this month. You've been thinking about this? I've been thinking about this like, oh my goodness, two years ago, it was like two weeks to flatten the curve. And goodness me, it's been two years, man. It's like, you go back to that time and that was a time of chaos. And remember thinking like, what are we gonna do about this? And this passage drew me great confidence to say, we have a God who when we cry out, Lord, we are perishing in the face of chaos. He will do something about it. And so in this passage then, Jesus does what only God could do. What God does all throughout the Old Testament is demonstrate that he and he alone has authority over the chaos. He and he alone can bring that back into order, and now Jesus is doing what only God can do. This is a sign that something new and unique is happening, that God's kingdom is being restored. He's setting things back in order. He's bringing his restorative reign, and that begins, of course, with bringing humanity back into relationship with him, but that immediately turns toward restoring creation and getting creation back to where it should be and jesus is showing that trusting in him is the only way that that is able to happen and so with the word my man wakes up from being asleep on a cushion i love that detail i just imagine him he got one of them airport pillows man you know what i'm saying he's like i like to you know my neck hurts when i travel so i like to have this cushion here for let me sleep in all circumstances and so i see this as a great blend of Jesus' human- exhausted humanity, what with all the healing and miracles and teaching and dealing with crowds, and he's tired, he needs to recharge, He's going to go to sleep on the boat while we're going to the next spot, but also his divinity, that he is this calm of like, there's no disorder or chaos that he's not going to be able to handle. He is like the restored human being, able to steward creation again, because he is God in human form, able to bring restoration where there is chaos. You can't make that story up. It's amazing. And so Jesus clearly demonstrates that he and he alone has that power and authority, and that creation, without him, has something terribly wrong with it that is unredeemable if he doesn't intervene. There's nothing we can do about it. And so even though we may not be people in the sea right now, we live a great deal away from the ocean and whatnot, but we can imagine the various other ways chaos Kind of threatens us from the natural world and a a sense of like we have a lack of control in the face of that. And the disciples do too. So now I want to talk about the disciples' tension and their doubt filled faith. That is not the right verse. (laughs) It's my fault, Nico. (laughs) It is my fault, Nico. I take ownership. So I, I want you to go back to my first slides. See, is it on the next one? This is going to work. This is work right here, man. Look at that. That's my backup plan. I even read those slides a few times. I was like, yeah, hey, that looks good. <laughs> okay. So uh, what we see in this passage, the disciples' tension. and de- This is what you do at Common Ground West, man. Welcome here where we might get our slides right sometimes, you know. Uh, We also have a nice parking lot. We really worked hard to organize that. And uh, yes, it's a hospitable place. We are glad you're here. Um, Anyway, the disciples have this tension. So I want to point out signs of their confident trust that is very real and signs of their doubt. So even the fact they are in the boat in the first place is a sign of confident-filled trust. They've made a big lifetime decision to, remember Mark 1, give up their nets and their boats and their father and go into life with Jesus. That life is, on the one hand, this nice journey, but it has significant moments where you make an all-of-life choice. You own this is who you're going to be. Even if things come later on that are tough, you make a choice of who you're going to be, of what you're going to be like in the face of a future that you don't know. And the disciples have made that choice. They have faith to even be with Jesus in the boat in the first place. And then, of course, when uh, they are faced with a situation beyond their control, they do show some trust in Jesus and that they wake him up. They don't try to solve it on their own, or maybe they did and then realize "Mm, this is not going to work out. So they do address Jesus with an authoritative title as teacher, and know that he is going to be the source of their help. I remember when that other story it makes, brings to mind when Jesus looks at his disciples and says to them, I see all these people leaving me. Are you going to go too? And they're like, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Like, even if I kind of wanted to, where else am I going to turn to? In a storm? Yeah, it may be nice to go somewhere else, but who else am I going to go to? You have the words of life. You can save us. And so they went to Jesus and they demonstrated that faith. But... There's also this doubt in their question. Go back to my last, my last, that, you know. mm, No. First, first, first verses that actually show their question. Mm, this, verse 38. Mercy. I got to show some improvement in this, man. I know. Next time I meet with the others, they're like, we got to work on the slides. I'll be like, I know, man, I'm working on it. It's on my goals for the next quarter. So he says here. They woke him up. And notice, they don't, like, say, teacher, we really need your help right now. We know you can do something about it. It's like, teacher, don't you care that we are drowning? I mean, it's like presuming you don't care. Presuming, it's like the presumption in the question is, he does not care. He does not interested in the fact that you're drowning. So they do go to him, but they go with this expression of fear. That is, there's some doubt there. They don't ask him with a sense of confident trust. They ask him with this fear. And this is the temptation for humanity, where we, on the one hand, are frail in the face of creation that has real threats against us, and it does. Nature is chaotic, and it can harm you. Your bodies are but dust, as the scriptures say. And it is terrifying to imagine what it could could be like if we don't have what we need and have the protections we need against nature. That is real, that frailty. And so it's easy for us to interpret that frailty And then go to God, and instead of saying, God, I have this pain, this fear, I feel under threat, but to interpret that threat through the lens of a fear that puts distance between us and God. We start to imagine that the fact that I'm threatened, and I might experience pain, loss, and even death, must mean also that God is not present with me. He's absent. That if he is present, he's not very concerned. He's not for my best interest. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. Or maybe he is present and he's interested, but he's just not powerful enough to do something about it. And so the disciples' question, has that read into it? They're not just being honest about their pain or their fear. Hey, God, I feel under threat right now. Please help me. It has read within it a presumption of distrust, a doubt that he's not there, he doesn't care, or he can't do something about it. And that is the temptation with us when we ask that kind of question. But notice then how Jesus responds. Go to my next question, my next slide. He rebukes them. After he calms the storm, he then rebukes them and says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, if you're like me, if you are also like the disciples and read uh, read into the situation of fear that puts distance between you and him, you then read this question too and think, oh, see, he doesn't have any room for their doubt. He's looking for a reason to kick them out. He's angry with them for being scared to death in the middle of a storm. But I don't don't think we have to read it through that lens because he stays with them. They keep staying with him through the story. And I think he's actually trying to press them into inviting them towards something better for them. There's a better way of life than being scared to death. And he's trying to show them, invite them into a deeper sense of confident trust in him even with lives under threat in this chaotic world, that he will always be with them, that he is for their best interests, and that in the end, he is capable of and will save them. To be able to be drawn into that. Because he knows that if we live life fearful, that then turns us in this direction of self-preservation and self-protection, and it is really impossible to be joyful, to be people of peace, to be loving, to enjoy life, to be present to the moment when we are terrified by all future threats. We know people like this, and maybe you struggle with it, and it shrivels up our souls when you live with that sense of fearful self-protection. And so Jesus' invitation here is to say, you don't have to be afraid. I got this. I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't interpret your doubts or your, your fears of the threats through the lens of him being distant from you. Don't interpret it through that lens. You can name a pain and a threat without feeling like God is distant from you. But he also knows our, the psalmist says, he knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He is not surprised or astonished that we would have this struggle. And so he's not to say, don't have a doubt. He's saying, even when you experience it, I invite you to press deeper into trust with me. So I think we need to sit in that for a second of what we do with our doubts. Because we have a temptation, as human beings, we experience doubt, we experience desire that is in conflict with what God wants us to be, and we experience feelings that are in conflict with that. Doubt, desire, and feelings. Issues with our minds, issues with our hearts, and issues with our very body that feels in conflict with Jesus. And here's where the church, I think, is messed up. We either go one way where we pretend those things don't exist at all. I don't have doubt. We can't experience doubt. I don't, feel any, I don't feel any tension. I'm good. I don't have any desires that are opposite. And we just suppress, suppress, suppress. And I think generations previous did that method of like, we're just going to pretend we don't, those things don't exist. But that's dishonest and doesn't treat us as the human beings we are that actually have those expressions and those feelings. The other side, though, what I've noticed, especially working with college students for years at, at my former church, is the other way around where there's like an overwhelming commitment to authenticity where we think to be true to ourselves is to totally live into the doubts and whatever I'm feeling in the moment and whatever desires I have. That those things represent the true me, and so I need to be all the way attentive to them and actually live from that place even if they are are waver from what God's about. I think that instead, this kind of narrative would call us into a different way. So I want to talk about what that way is. To notice our doubt without nurturing our doubt. When you have doubt and feelings and desires that are in conflict with what God would want for us, don't be ashamed of that. Don't don't feel like this self-condemnation. Don't be scared of it where you have to shove it down. Instead, notice that it's there. Notice that it is there. I think those noticing is actually the gateway to a deeper, honest relationship with God where he can really transform our souls. And if we instead suppress them, pretend they don't exist, there's a whole window of our hearts and our minds that we're not letting God bring transformation to and bring healing to. I think in that moment when the disciples reveal their doubt, he's inviting them to to say, I notice that's there. Let's bring it in healing and bring it in transformation. But the nurturing of doubt is when you choose to live into it, when it becomes a thing that will then shape your behaviors and your attitudes. It gives you a reason to disengage from Christian community, to refrain from Christian practices because you're not feeling it at the moment. I remember my last church that there was a person in leadership, and they were going through a difficult time in their faith life, and as as we do. Sometimes we have a whole season. I'm like, man, that was a bad year. And that's what she was experiencing. And so she was at the leadership meeting, though, and was like, I don't, I'm not going to pray. You, someone else can pray right now. And I appreciated that she was being honest about it. But it was good for a conversation of, like, is that nurturing the doubt? Is that a good example of that, where you allow that to dominate and then let it dictate your choices? Versus noticing it's there, bringing it before God and yourself with honest introspection, and trusting that God can heal it in his own time. I noticed this psalm uh, this week. I read a psalm every morning to kind of guard my prayers. And I like when he said this. When you are disturbed, not if, you will be disturbed, don't sin, but instead ponder it on your beds. Of course, man, this psalmist knows me, man, because the doubts come when I'm supposed to be sleeping. He's like, ponder it on your beds, be silent, and then offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. But notice this. You're going to be disturbed. When you're disturbed... You can let that gap of distrust break open and live into it. That is the choice to sin. Any level of rebellion and distancing and withdrawing from God and from what He calls us to, that would be sin. So you get disturbed and you think, "Oh man, I kind of doubt God. I'm going to go away from Him." Adam and Eve did that. In the garden, they are disturbed by the snake, and instead of going back to God the like, God, tell me about the snake over here. What do you think we should do about the snake?" Instead, they're like, "Oh man, something's a right here." and I better solve this on my own, and uh, snake's pretty convincing, so I'm going to try this apple over here, and oh my goodness, all hell is broken loose now. (laughs) So instead, you're disturbed, you notice it, you ponder it, you reflect on it. Something's there, it seems to be disturbing. Don't freak out about it, write about it. Think about it, be silent and dwell on it, and then you turn to God, and you can still choose to live out the sacrificial lifestyle he's called us to. Romans 12, he says that you present now your bodies as living sacrifices. All of Christian living now is a living sacrifice. We don't need to go arise and go slay animals now. You arise with your very body and put it towards Jesus' purposes by offering it as a sacrifice before him and put your trust in the Lord. That is not the choice to say, never mind, I don't have doubt. It's you live as if you have that trust. It's like this stool here. I don't know how it all works. I, don't, I might have doubts at times that it doesn't, you know, might not hold me up. My last still broke. That's why I have this one now. And I, if I choose to sit on it, that is me putting trust in it. It doesn't matter what I think on the inside. It doesn't matter whether I doubt its structure or whether it works or whatever. If I choose to sit in it, that is me putting trust in the Lord. And so this guy imagines, this psalmist imagines, he's going to be disturbed and tempted. And instead of letting that put distance between him and God, he's going to be honest about it before, his, before God and for himself and he's going to turn his body towards making a sacrificial choice even when his inside is in turmoil, and he's going to make choices as if he trusts God even when he doesn't. And that will, in the end, give life to your faith. Think about James 2 and he says your faith of that, that works is dead. I don't think that means like if you don't have you know, good works or whatever, God's going to judge you. I think when you live in accordance with your faith, it gives life to your faith. It puts a flame under your faith, and makes you believe it to be true when you make choices in accordance with it, even if your inside is off. And people do this all the time and are faithful in it. I think Mother Teresa is a great example. I think about this all the time. They found her journals when she had died and her journals were filled with doubt. God, where are you? Why aren't you here? I haven't cinched you in a while. But that didn't dictate her choices. She kept making a confident choice that in the end she's gonna put a bet on her life that God is who he says he is, and keep making choices that direction, even while noticing the doubts that are there. So we notice them without letting them dictate our choices and giving life to them. And we are honest about them to ourselves and to God. And then, we don't keep it in, we can share it with our community. And so this is where it's important that we share this, we make our our communal spaces spaces that give room for doubt. That it was not like, hey, we got to come here all buttoned up. Now, how was your week? It was good. Uh, what did you think of this passage? It was nice. uh, is it? You have any troubles? mm That's good. Instead, we can say, you know what? I'm struggling to believe it to be true that God said this. I know God said that, and I know you all don't doubt this, but my particular doubt is this. Even this past Monday, I was hanging with Jeff K. And I was just like, hey, man. Uh, we were you know, being honest about a lot of stuff, and I, was, I confessed doubts to him, and he gave me encouragement in the middle of it. And we do that. Because that's what the passage does. You think about the disciples. It is not normal in the first century to imagine that you can write down history objectively. Like, I'm just going to tell you the facts. It always communicates some kind of agenda. P.S., ours does too. There's no such thing as being objective with your history. You're selecting some facts that you're going to tell, and that comes with an agenda to it. And the disciples who came up, who kind of nurtured these stories, circled them around, made sure they were either wrote them down or oversaw the writing down of them, they chose to put their failures in here. And they're doing this while they're still living, and the Christian community is reading their stories, and they look at Peter over there like, man, see, man, why are you scared in the boat over there? And Peter's like, yeah, I was. But here I am, now still leading in the church because Jesus stayed with me and let me have doubt in front of his face. And at least whole space for people in the crowd to go, oh, yeah, me too. Oh, I'm glad about that because I kind of feel that way too. And we experience then our doubt is almost cut in half by simply sharing it in community and someone else going, yeah, same here. And so that's a different kind of transparency than like the phone vulnerability, F-A-U-X, faux, fake vulnerability. I saw that in a book recently. I'm like, oh, that's nice, man, that's tricky. That we have on like social media that is a kind of transparency that is like self-affirming, that doesn't want to be challenged and it's just trying to get approval. This is like Christian transparency that is done out of love for other people. Like, it is better for you if I'm honest about my struggles. You then can say, me too, and we together are drawn closer to Jesus. It is an honesty that doesn't allow us to just do what we want, but an honesty that says, I think this stands in the way between me and God and me being faithful to him. And you say, yeah, me too, and mine's kind of like this. Okay, well, how can we pray for each other this week so that this week we can be confident in trusting God even when our hearts are in turmoil? That is the vision for a Christian community done well. And we're tempted to kind of hold back on that and be dishonest about it and give false pretense. I think this community is pretty strong at that, actually. So I encourage you in that. But invite that this is kind of the underlayment that says that that's why that's valuable. We can encourage each other as we notice our doubts before each other and before God, and then invite God to transform them, to reveal in us what experiences we've had that would need some healing. Where do those come from? They come from something in this world. Let those be brought to the light and healed that we may come to follow Jesus all the more deeply. I think this is the heart of confession. It's not just like, let me go confess, I made a mistake this week, here's my three failures, what are your three failures? It's bigger than that. It's like a more nebulous thing you can't grab hold of. Like, I have a tendency to see myself through this lens, to see the world through this lens. How do you see that, too? How is God drawing us into a confident trust in Him anyway? And that's the ultimate call, that even while they're fearful, God is drawing them into confident trust so that they can live lives with joy and peace and love which are incompatible with being scared to death and scared of death. Instead, you approach Life with a confidence that no matter what could ever happen, God is with me, he's for me, and I will never be separated from him or his people for eternity. And he's drawing us into making those choices. In the meantime, as we wait until the end, let me read from this hopeful uh, passage in Revelation 21. Is at the very end, chapter before the end. It says, then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See, the sea is not neutral. It has like a, it's a source of evil, and like the people in Israel were like terrified of the sea. And he's like, there won't even be a sea there, because there's no source of evil there anymore. It's gone. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. There's no distance don't interpret the pain and the threat of pain as distance or absence. He's, his vision is to be with us, to make his home among us mortals. He will dwell with them, and they, we, he's talking about y'all, will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. How many times has he had to say it? He clearly is dealing with a community that struggles to believe that to be true. So he should just write it a thousand times with you. He's not going away. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. While we wait on that, it's an invitation to step further and further towards confident trust that Jesus is who he says he is. He's going to set things right. His cross and resurrection took on all the chaos and pain of this world and the sin which caused it in the first place and wiped it away to say it has been exhausted. There is no more harm that can be done. The sea, the monsters out of the sea and all the evil around it cannot harm you anymore. It will be temporary harm. It will not have the last word. God will have the last word when he sets things right and his death and resurrection certify that as a permanent victory. In the meantime, we wait with confident hope even while we are frail and doubtful and fearful. God's got us, and he's not terrified by that, and neither should we. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, let us receive that invitation. Let us be honest. We do have fears. We fear lacking something. We fear being exposed. We feel being, fear being harmed. We fear getting sick, we fear going without we fear war and violence and disease we confess that it is scary to be in this creation but we trust that you breathe life into these frail bones and that you insist on being with us and that our frailty our propensity to be injured our sickness and even our death will not be the end And so we lay our lives in hope that you will make things right. Let it sink into our hearts. May you turn that doubt into confident trust in you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray.